I'm Dino Busalaki, the Chief Technology Officer and OT Guy at Delta Technology. Hi, I'm Jim, the COO and IT Guy. And I'm Craig Duckworth, President and CEO. You're listening to the Industrial Cybersecurity Insider Show. In each episode, we bring you the inside scoop on the world of industrial cybersecurity. We talk about everything you don't know. That you should know. So plug in and power up. The show's about to get started. My name is Craig Duckworth, and I am the president of Belta Technology. And today with me, we have Rogan Dwyer, who is one of the foremost experts in the insurance space. And I'm going to let him give a little bit about his background. Rogan, tell us where you're from, what you do. Good morning, Craig. Thank you for that. I was at Lloyd's Underwriter for 25 years back in the 20th century and moved across to the United States at the beginning of 2000 to grow and create an insurance agency based upon the traditional values and efforts of Lloyd's. And then over the course of the next 10 years or so, I became more a consultant, really, in trying to shape the future of insurance, create a couple of insurance companies specifically for one or two difficult spaces, and then got pulled into the risk mitigation world because we began to see that the traditional insurance world needed help in understanding the risks better. And we found that to be an area where educating and bringing risk mitigation and insurance together is is a very important part of what we're looking at for the future. Oh, perfect. How do you like the U.S. versus Europe? You like it okay over here? I love it. Not one single day has gone by when I haven't been happy to be here. And if anyone asks the question, I say, that what's the first thing that's different? I said, it's louder here. (laughs) (laughs) It is louder here. That is true. Yes. Perfect. Well, let's jump in. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, and I want to get to it. You know, as we look at the current state of of cybersecurity in the industrial space, which is really where Belta plays, our focus is on the industrial manufacturing. How are you seeing the impacts of the organizations and what they are doing today from a high-level cyber landscape? What are you seeing? What I think in a mile-high view is that to separate cyber from everyday operations is a mistake. Everyday operations should incorporate cyber and operational and and all elements of risk mitigation and governance and board oversight, all aspects of running a business. And cyber should not be removed from that and pushed to the side into the hands of a third party. Critically, I think all, whether it be IT or, or operational technology, the boards need to get more involved in understanding their risk, which would then really filter back to the insurance world and help to bring the, the cyber risk back into the traditional insurance where it sits anyhow as a silent non-affirmative risk. So that's a lot. That's a lot. One thing that I believe organizations struggle with, and maybe you can help us understand this, from an enterprise and a holistic standpoint, you look at an organization, you mentioned boards need to begin to understand this better. Who at an organization actually is owning that risk? Is there a risk committee? Is it the CEO? Is it fall under finance? Who would you say is ultimately responsible from an organization to own that risk that would be working with the insurance companies to make sure they have everything covered? I think ideally, somebody who knows that they are responsible. And I think one of the problems is that everyone, if in the event of a problem, all too often, everyone's looking at each other thinking, well, I thought you had that. 
Yeah. Or they go to a third party and say, well, we gave that over to you to provide the oversight. And, and that's particularly relevant to the, the cybersecurity realm, where we've observed that a lot of companies will rely upon a third party on reputational risk, on whatever they're renowned for, and they'll spend a lot of money on bringing in a brand name to take that risk from their board, but they don't fully understand what they're paying for, and they don't know where that company that's providing the oversight, where their statement of work starts and stops. And I think that's our message is the board has to fully understand that, and then within the board, identify who is the person with the target on their back, and it really starts from there. To answer your question, the person who is responsible knows they're responsible and knows what those responsibilities are. And that makes sense because, you know, just me not fully understanding the insurance piece, I wouldn't believe that a third party, whoever it would be, they would have any liability if something goes sideways after they provide that guidance to the organization. Would that be a fair statement? Because ultimately, it's still the organization's responsibility to ensure that they have everything they need, regardless of the consultative or guidance of a third party, as you mentioned. Would that be accurate? Yes. I think it goes back to that statement of work. What are you paying for? And if the assumption is you're paying for more than the company agreed to in its EULA agreement or what have you, then there is a yawning gap there which needs to be addressed and understood. Okay. Yeah. One thing that we're seeing a lot of recently is government oversight, regulatory oversight. You know, the SEC is beginning to step in. They're saying, hey, if there's a material event, you have so many hours to respond, to report this to, you know, the shareholders and disclosures. Are you seeing positively or negatively from a government oversight into the industry? How do you think that will help or potentially hurt the industry as we look at trying to navigate these uncharted waters? I think the principle is good. I think disclosure is very important. I think collaboration and understanding what are the latest threats and how can they be countered and collective understanding and minds applied to that can only be beneficial. I'm a little concerned that the response time for actually breaching one of these regulations seems to be very lengthy. And the penalties for not complying with the penalties seem to be something that, that companies feel they can ignore for the time being. Yeah. And I would say from a very current headline, Rogan, this Clorox event that just came out, which was to the tune of almost a half a billion dollars or more, it appeared that some of the thought was we would not even have known about this had Clorox then not been forced by the regulatory oversight that said they must disclose this now. What's your thought on that? Absolutely. I think, you know, <laughs> it depends how wide you want to push the argument, but I think being forced to disclose may hinder the operations of the victim, but it's beneficial to all others to know what to look for and whether best practice has been applied to it, how it's been dealt with, etc. That's information we should all know because we need to build this database because talking back to the insurance world, Really, they're working pretty blind on data because we've never been forced to collect that data and therefore act upon it. So we really need that to be able to create a better response to this. I would say from what we see in the industrial side, I would agree 100% with that. You know, as we work with manufacturers, their struggle is they don't have visibility into their assets. 
So we're often wondering how are insurers even adequately covering manufacturing when what we normally see is a survey or some sort of application coming to someone on the IT side of the fence that is completing this for manufacturing. And the underwriters sometimes and sometimes not really don't understand the full breadth once they get down to those lower level networks of what the exposure is in manufacturing. Are you seeing the same thing? Yes. The the application process is so antiquated in the insurance world and it's tied in with the rating. So you have to complete the application as presented to you as a client. There is no real way to review that information that's supplied by the client unless there's an audit that comes later in the year or after the extended period, or there's a loss. In many cases, that's the first time the underwriters really get a chance to see what really goes on in in that enterprise. And so the application, it's confined by the questions it asks. Those questions, to my mind, are inadequate for the cyber threat that's facing us. And they don't give the underwriters an insight to the broader risk, especially the silent non-affirmative risk. The client is only obliged to answer the questions they're asked. And that, to our mind, they are not broad enough or searching enough to provide the information underwriters really should be looking for. It sounds to me like there's an opportunity there to help the underwriters from an education standpoint and a best practices of hey, you guys have been writing risk a very long time. This industrial risk is a maybe a new area or maybe a new venture or something they're not as familiar with as they are on the IT side. Maybe there's an opportunity to begin working with them to try and help modify some of the questions because you're right, Rogan. If someone asks me to answer something, we've been taught our whole life, don't volunteer information that's not being asked. Why would you say, oh, and by the way, we have all of these problems over here and I'm just volunteering them to you now so that you don't ask later? Yeah, I agree. It goes back to the disclosures and reporting. This should be a collaborative effort. Everyone should see the greater benefit in being part of the conversation because our our biggest concern is not necessarily the individual ransom attack or the 20 million here or the 40 million there, however much that affects the company. It's a systemic attack that worries us, whereby you're going to have thousands of companies affected by the same incident. It's going to be every man for themselves. There aren't going to be third-party resources to address that. So again, this educational piece is really important for boards to take on board and not feel that it's something that's being pushed upon them by the regulators. This is for their own good. Yeah, I think you're spot on, Rogan. I think that businesses, organizations, boards, the C-suite, have to begin taking notice and making changes, not just accepting, but truly driving change for this to be effective. I agree with that. Let me shift gears a little bit. If we're looking at, let's call them misconceptions of what organizations believe they have coverage for, or they believe that they are applying for, we hear all the horror stories. We see in the news, business had all-inclusive insurance, insurance carrier denied because of pick a thing, doesn't matter. As insurers are looking to mitigate their losses because they don't fully understand this industrial cyber realm, what are some of the concerns they need to look out for? and What's some of the misconceptions they believe they have that they may not have? 
From an insurance perspective? Yes, from an insurance perspective, yes. Well, I think that the weight of evidence on how inadequate the concept of buying an insurance policy is your first and last line of defense surely has been understood by people that is a very limited way of addressing your risk. There has to be more than that. One of our messages is to try to get people to understand that the insurance is the last line of defense. When all else goes wrong, insurance should be there and it should pay out. It should be there for you when you need it. And the parameters of that contract, I think, have got very, very complicated. I think it's very difficult for a client, not trying to, to blame clients, but to, it's very difficult then to understand what they have bought in advance of the problem. Most of the time, they only find out what they bought when they come to try and make a claim and realize that in page 126 of the policy that they bought, their agent yeah. didn't fully understand they've got an yeah. exclusion for something. That's a whole another skill, which insurance has, has created so many double negatives within those wordings, they are very hard to follow. So one of the things we'd like to see is, is a simpler policy which with less expectation attached to it, but that does what it says it's going to do when called upon. To me, that would make sense. I equate it back to my auto insurance. I hope I never have to use it, but if I need it, I want it to help me. It's a little different from an auto standpoint as it is a business and commercial, but some of the states, back to that regulatory, states are forcing minimal insurance coverages to protect those that aren't willing to protect themselves in a sense. So it could be something down the road where the federal government in this process tries to help everyone do something like that. And it may never materialize. I don't know. But I can see that kind of coming down the road potentially. Yeah, I think we're, we're somewhat hampered by people's reluctance to take regulation on board. It's got itself a dirty name. Regulation is too great. The oversight is too expensive. But in this instance, we're talking about things that people don't really understand. There's an awful lot of choice out there. It's very difficult for any company to know who to hire, whose hands are they going to put their very existence into. I think some help and a platform to make that a uniform mission is actually very helpful. And again, there's maybe something that our government oversight can do to slightly take away from that fear that government oversight is all bad. It's not all bad. Sometimes it's very necessary. Maybe some of the frameworks that are there today, are there certain things that you guys see organizations should follow, frameworks, or either that be from NIST or that be from any of the organizations? Are there things that would help organizations as they begin to prepare for a cyber insurance or an insurance audit or whatever piece they come in? I don't know if these are annual renewals, if these are more than one year. What are they requiring to maintain and keep and get those policies? Are there certain things that you could recommend or that you're seeing organizations need to begin doing that the carriers are looking toward as they begin to understand this industry a little better? I think there's probably two questions in there. One is the government oversight being required by underwriters. And I don't see much evidence of that. You know, NIST is thrown around quite a lot. There's GDPR. There's considerations, yes. And there's maybe one or two questions asked about it. But I think more important is developing this standard with insurers who have the direct contact with the client. The, the insurance is the DNA of business. You can't really operate a business in 2023 without an insurance policy. Unfortunately, it looks like the insurance policy has become an operation certificate rather than a, a genuine contract of indemnity. Yes. But without it, you can't operate. 
That's a true statement. And we see that every day for contracts that we get with clients in the master service agreements and in the language, they're requiring us to provide our insurance certificates in good standing with minimal liability coverage, depending on the contract. We are not even allowed to bid on contracts without that in place. So you are a spot on and 100% correct. It's being driven and forced from a vendor management to protect the companies that work is being done for. Right. That's sort of the extent of the supply chain protection at the moment. That's the kind of keystone for it. The next element of your question was really about what are insurers doing to integrate NIST and other well-meaning initiatives that have been developed over the years. I would say, first and foremost, that the trouble is they are glacially slow. The working parties, the this, the that, the, the consultations that take place to then produce a paper, which is a recommendation, not a mandate, it really is a very, very slow process to affect any kind of change in that regard. That being said, underwriters can do it a lot quicker. Okay. So if you, going back to the fact that DNA is the DNA of business, if underwriters start to implement those things in collaboration and they do it based upon profit, based upon best practice, based upon common sense, that's going to help the combined initiative. So okay. we've actually got a couple of programs we've initiated out of Lloyd's where we are, say, educating the underwriters. It's probably being glorious, but we are helping underwriters to understand questions they may want to ask and what the implications of those answers are. One of the challenges with insurance, nobody gets paid unless they sell a policy. True. And we have to move beyond that to not standing in the way of underwriters fulfilling their budgetary obligations. They have to write a certain amount of premium every year. They have to write, and those premiums are backed into actuarial studies. Well, when you're looking at a risk that is so new, actuarial studies are frankly irrelevant because they don't keep pace with the change and the, the threat that's out there at the moment for IT and OT. So that process to us is critical to have underwriters in almost a Socratic manner. Let's ask more and more questions and help underwriters to understand they're not being told they're, they're not doing their job well, but they're being told to look at things and understand the implications of the answers. That in turn can be pushed back down to the clients who need to have insurance to operate. Maybe they can't get insurance. Okay, well, let's be creative here. What does that company have to do to secure insurance? With well, insurance, as again, being a certificate of operation as much as a genuine risk mitigation tool. No, very valid because we run into organizations on a continual basis who are either uninsured or have seen their premiums double, triple, quadruple in the last couple of years. So it sounds to me that the underwriters are key to this process because they are the ones that are, I guess, making the decision, if you want to call it that, on what to write and what not to write because they are trying to mitigate the risk and the overall exposure for the organization. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yes, because here's the conundrum. So I will say I talk to an underwriter and they have a box that's been created by a board that says you can write risks within these parameters at this price. If the risk they see doesn't fit into that predetermined box, they can't write it. Therefore, they may be unable to meet their budget for the year. So usually they have the ability to then refer certain risks to the board and say, this sits outside the box, but we believe this one's worth writing because over and above what has been requested in this formula, they've done other things which actually, and this is the impact those have on this risk. Therefore, we think this is one we should make an exception for. 
again, is a slow process, but at least it brings in an element of subjectivity and, and the ability to look beyond the template and actually okay. say yes. And we do have some underwriters who will do that. So we are we're definitely getting there. It needs to go back up the chain so that the directors and what have you are still relying on actuarial studies and legal protections. Understand okay. that this is actually an opportunity every bit as much as it is a danger. Without giving us a name, would you be able to share a real live experience where you saw that help an organization, where you had an organization come to you that was struggling, either couldn't get policy, and you worked with an underwriter and helped them through the process? What was the outcome? Give us just a quick play-by-play of what you did and what the outcome was from a real live scenario. So the example I will pick, this is my company, Observatory Strategic Management. We do a preliminary quick scan of a profile of a company. It's an OSINT scan in terms of what they look like to the general public or worse, the bad guys. It's a snapshot. It's available to anybody if they know where to look. But the results of those scans give the underwriter an understanding of whether or not that client has an awareness of their vulnerability and whether they're taking that on board and doing something about it. So at least you've got a preliminary low-cost price of entry to then applying to the underwriter and saying, this is who we are. We can't get insurance because the previous underwriters have turned us down on this, 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 and this. We can then help them evaluate whether by dealing with those objections from the previous underwriters and an understanding of the risk itself and therefore some other initiatives they bring in from third parties or what have you, whether that is going to be enough to write that risk. Underwriters would have written that risk. This is a different risk. Underwriters would write the risk and they'd find out really about the vulnerabilities only when they have a loss or until next year when they ask the same questions again and put the home bell, probably get the same answers. Right. But if they then bring in, say, okay, we'll take this client on board based upon their an understanding that they're trying to make good, they're trying to make themselves acceptable for the insurance market. Let's take them on board and work with them. And then we'll conduct an inventory of, or an audit. An inventory is where you come in on the operational side, help that board to understand where their vulnerabilities are so they can then apply the appropriate measures to protect it. And the same on the IT side, this is where you are, where do you want to be in 12 months' time. Underwriters, is that adequate for you to take this risk on board and start to build a better book of business. Because you will find out by doing this, you will understand all of your clients better than you do at the moment. And instead of chasing your tail and trying to react to your actuarial results on an annual basis and then adjusting rates according to past experience, which is the traditional manner, you can move forward and start being more proactive and start seeking better clients, the clients that nobody else wants because they don't take the trouble to understand how they operate. And that makes sense. I would think that from an insurer's standpoint, a better book of business, as you mentioned, would be what they would achieve to go and get. If they could write policies that don't have the losses or that are trying to improve their security posture through remediation with working with Belta and other organizations on the industrial side, with partners that you may have on the IT side, they can go through that and show the insurers, the underwriters, we are taking these steps you recommended to improve what we're doing. And we're trying to be a good business partner. We're trying to do the things needed to mitigate and not have a loss as best that we can. So that makes sense. That's a good Mm -hmm. approach, Rogan. So there's some good underwriters trying to do that. There's definite hope for the future. It's difficult to show future benefits 
Sometimes you have to work on a small sample. So it might be an underwriter who you find who maybe write two, three, four million dollars worth of premium. But what we hope to show him or her, not only is the risk a better risk, you spend less time, you see less risks, but you bind more of them. Your claims process is more efficient. Your onboarding is more efficient. And efficiencies are created everywhere. And you get a better book of business at the end of it. And that surely should be what the goal of insurance companies in the first place is putting assets at risk for a profit. Okay. That's what they're there for. And that, to me, from outside the industry, it makes sense. I think that boards, executives, C-suite would understand that message presented that way. And the insurers and the underwriters specifically would go along with that. I think it makes sense. A couple things I want to throw out to you real fast. I just got back from Las Vegas from a gaming show. And the topic of the day was MGM and their $100 million loss. They believe, and I don't know, I'm going to ask you, insurance is their backstop, that their losses are going to be paid and they ultimately will be made whole. I know typically, sometimes that's the case, sometimes that's not the case. Just from an industry insider, what does a time window look like? So organizations that are looking to try and use that as a remediation. Do you see the insurers just willingly writing a check or is this years down the road as we've seen in the past with other organizations and many lawsuits later and at the end of the day, they may or may not get anything. What is that? What could an organization expect to experience in the event that they have a large loss like $100 million and are trying to be reimbursed for that? Well, I think your instincts are absolutely correct. I would imagine it's going to take them a long time to recover if they can recover all or some of that. Lawyers are certainly going to be involved. The decision-making will be questioned. The coverage will be questioned. The amount is so substantial that you've got reinsurers who are also questioned. There's going to be a cash flow restriction on this. And we can commend MGM for taking the stance they did. Yes. And I'm sure they're being well advised. One of the challenges that companies face who who rely on their insurance is that in many ways, they're giving over their response to an insurance company to manage. And we can't help but feeling there's a conflict of interest there. I would say you're probably right. It's almost like the fox watching the hen house. It probably doesn't make the most sense. Right. And those funds that they've paid premium for, they should be part of the decision making process in how those funds are those defense costs or whatever they might be are allocated. And to cede those rights to the insurer, I think is dangerous. And we would strongly advise that going back to the educational purpose, the directors and the board of directors should take charge of that system, fulfill the obligations of the insurance policy, absolutely, which is no doubt going to be consultative in nature at the very least. But they should have a seat at the table in making the decisions rather than just allowing insurers to run the case for them. No, perfect. I would say we've covered a lot today, Rogan. It's been very, very educational for me, for sure and hopefully for our audience, any last thoughts as whether they're trying to understand the balance of how much insurance is the right amount of insurance? What do I need? Do I need insurance? Can I self-insure? Is there anything, if there's one takeaway that an organization listening today could say, you know what, that makes sense. That resonates with me. What parting guidance would you try and get them to take heed to and take action on? 
I'll try to be succinct. I think if you, as an organization, if you are buying insurance as your sole means of protecting your entire enterprise, the existence of your enterprise, you are sadly misguided if you think that is adequate. If your purchase of insurance is that it's protecting a specific element of the risk, whether it be the balance sheet, whether it be cash flow, whatever sector it might be, and it's part of your overall protection, then I think there's absolutely a place for it, but it should be fully understood as to why you're buying it and how it's going to react when you do have a loss. If we can help identify that so an insurance policy does what it is expected to do with all parties, including insurance agents and security people and the insurance company, shareholders, everybody's aligned, then we can protect not just the individual loss, but also the systemic loss, which is what we're most concerned about. Perfect. I know you mentioned throughout the program at least once observatory. How can a client reach you if they have questions or if they're looking for guidance? What would be their method to reach out to you, Rogan, so they could get some help? My colleague, Jerry Kennedy, he's very active on LinkedIn, and he's fairly broad-ranging in his topics, but they usually lead back to risk mitigation and understanding of what's at stake here. I'm also CEO of insurance agency, Waters Insurance Network, and we basically try to work side by side. We've identified the insurance industry. I've been perhaps a little harsh today on the insurance industry, but it is a phenomenal distribution channel. It's a phenomenal access point to the boardroom, and therefore it's got credibility and it's got a voice. So we embrace the insurance industry. We hope we can all work together through our insurance agency, any client we can help, whether it be buying a policy or whether it be risk mitigation to their existing program, then we're happy to do that sort of hand in hand. Fantastic, Rogan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. It's been a great show. Thanks for joining us. You're very welcome, Greg. Always great talking to you. We've learned a lot from you and your expertise at Velter and your colleagues and really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Yep. Same here. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Industrial Cybersecurity Insider Podcast. To stay up to date with our latest episodes, be sure to click the follow or subscribe button now. And if you found this podcast helpful or have a topic you'd like us to cover, please leave us a review or let us know. If you're interested in learning more about Velta technology and how you can get safer sooner, visit veltatech.com. That's V-E-L-T-A tech.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.